On this season, we'll explore our most ingrained beliefs, delusions, and archetypes, the ways that cognitive dissonance shapes our culture, and how our reality is created by the stories we tell. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. You can put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. My administration is putting an end to the war on coal. Uh, There's a lot of confusion amongst white people in this country, amongst white workers in this country about who the enemy is. For part of my youth, I shot rifles up in the hills near Olympia, Washington, fished for trout from a rickety silver boat, learned to shoot a bow and arrow, camped in the middle of nowhere with my dad and howled along with the coyotes, caught snakes in the tall grass, learned to play equally rickety country music, tearing the sleeves off my shirt and riding in the back of my dad's pickup truck at sometimes questionable speeds. On the other side of my family, I listened to Johnny Cash with my beloved grandpa throwing horseshoes across the lawn and dreaming of the clang of a ringer. I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to be like my grandpa. I listened with rapt attention to the childhood stories of him riding his horse to school through the glowing green of the North Dakota hills in a tiny town called Dunseeth. He grew up very poor in a little wooden house, the winters a possible death sentence, his dad once making moonshine inside the basement, him sneaking drinks of southern comfort and falling asleep in the field, or sneaking out to a rowdy barn dance that was forbidden by the priest. As I covered in our Hipsters episode, I've always lived a dual life. One of opportunity and education, fulfillment of desired Christmas gifts, safety with a good mom and stepdad that provided me generously with all the things I needed. But I did live in another kind of world on the weekends, and another kind of world riding in my grandpa's light blue Datsun pickup or his red Ford F-150. These were conflicting identities in many ways, and as I took off in my own pickup truck toward my grandpa's North Dakota, I sat alone around a campfire many nights, thinking about him, thinking about his kindness, his gentleness, and how I could emulate the man who was my hero. A hero who could have been called a redneck, could have been called white trash, could have been called a hillbilly, but never seemed to exhibit the uglier kinds of stereotypes that often come along with those names. A man who would never, not in a million years, have voted for Donald Trump. This is an episode that may be uncomfortable at times because of the narratives we have all inherited and the simplistic history of race and class that has intentionally pitted us all against each other for a very long time. In fact, the racial categories we know today were never inherent. They were constructed as a tactic way back in the 1600s by the elite plantation owners and politicians of the American South to protect their own power from potential revolts. 
But we'll also see how those racial lines have been crossed throughout history by workers in solidarity, even with the spreading stories of feeble-minded and dangerous hillbillies who fascinated and terrified suburbia, the banjo-playing mutant monsters isolated in the hills, those that would become a large focus of 20th century eugenics. Those considered racist white trash have been blamed again and again by the media and much of middle-class America for the victory of Donald Trump, despite the fact that polling has shown that middle-class suburbia and upper-class voters were just as responsible. But when we employ our cognitive dissonance, when we have someone else to point the finger at, someone who is the real racist, it makes it easier for us to ignore parts of ourselves, the bigotry that has historically come from both sides of the political spectrum, both the very poor, but even more so, the very rich. Extreme economic privilege and privilege in general is often able to put on the right face through education, say the right things, and determine who gets to be the good ones and who becomes the bad, the ones we so rabidly love to blame. No power on earth can exercise the terror from scum of the earth. The real poor white trash. Horror movies say more about the prevailing cultural fears of their time than most other popular culture media. These films have only a short amount of time to scare the audience as much as possible, and building an entire separate world of horror proves difficult in 120 minutes. As a result, directors rely on already embedded fears, and in a feedback loop, they both illustrate current anxieties and reinforce them as well. I recently watched the 1972 horror movie Deliverance, a film nominated for several Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It's certainly the most famous pop cultural portrait of the region called Appalachia that's ever been made. And it would go on to inform the subgenre known as hillbilly horror up to the present day. In the film, Four men from the city of Atlanta, seeking adventure, canoe down a raging river in northwestern Georgia and are sexually assaulted and picked off one by one by a group of evil hillbillies, hell-bent on punishing them for their uppity class roots. In the most famous scene of the film, one of the men plays his guitar along with a boy implied to be inbred, who impresses the men with his rendition of dueling banjos. Billy Redden, the 15-year-old boy scouted from the local school to play the character known only as the Banjo Boy, became an archetype of Appalachia. Described in the script as inbred, Billy was not actually physically or mentally disabled, but the cast and crew shaved his head and used makeup in order to make him appear so, and that idea of him lasts into the present day. 
One star of the film and notorious asshole John Voight allegedly said of Billy with absolutely no evidence, quote, He was a boy who had a genetic imbalance, a product of his mother and his brother, I think. Hillbilly horror is still popular and is rarely met with much criticism for its offensive portrayals of Appalachians and poor white rural folks in general. The Hills Have Eyes, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and more recently the Wrong Turn series all share a sense of the inbred, sociopathically violent, dangerous, grinning, stupid slayers of the middle-class city dwellers and suburbanites in their dark, wooded margins of our civilization. These American monsters are presented with a complete lack of the traits of the middle class, with no emulation of the well-mannered elitism that separated them from the others of whiteness. Does the word Appalachia, the word hillbilly, conjure up for you visions of seething racism and homophobia, of slurs dripping brown with chewing tobacco from the lips of evil white trash rednecks who live in shacks with gutted deer hanging outside their door? The archetype of the American redneck is far more complicated than we wish to believe. The very complicated roots of black enslavement have led to right-wing extremists and politicians promoting the idea that European immigrants were enslaved in the same way that the first Africans were. Obviously, this was never the case, but the development of the ideas of blackness and whiteness as categories for exploitation were not inherent to the colonists. More than 80% of Europeans who took passage to America were a group called indentured servants, those who made the choice to come to America toward what they considered a better life, and they did so by signing contracts to plantation owners outlining their servitude as unpaid labor with the promise of some acreage at the end of the agreement. The first Africans to come to America, however, did not have that same choice during the infamous year of 1619 when the first group was captured from a Portuguese slave ship and brought to Virginia. This may seem unbelievable, but before the institution of slavery was actually written into law a handful of decades later, African people actually had some similar rights to white indentured servants, even the ability to vote and own land. That is, until an African man named John Punch broke his contract, fleeing a wealthy plantation owner with his two European indentured servant cohorts. The three of them were eventually captured in 1640, and John was forced into a lifetime of slavery with no possibility of freedom, while the other two Europeans simply received an extension of their old contracts. This marked the first legal moment where an African would be sentenced to a lifetime of enslavement, something that would never, ever touch their European counterparts. Indentured servants were suffering, certainly, and they would be treated with any brutality that the plantation owners decided was appropriate. In this way, poor immigrants felt far more aligned with the Africans they worked beside in the fields under the abusive eyes of the elite. 
Bacon's Rebellion of 1676 is an extremely complicated event that took place in Virginia, at first a colonial fight against local tribes. But eventually it turned into a kind of class war, with Africans and Europeans fighting side by side against the rich landowners and politicians. This moment, along with other similar uprisings, sparked an idea in the upper crust, and they purposefully employed that age-old strategy known as divide and conquer, pitting these two groups against each other to keep their own status safe, to keep the revolution at bay. As author Judy Helfand said in her essay, Constructing Whiteness, The large landowners had become an elite group faced with an increasingly unruly populace of mostly European small landholders and artisans, free men without land, again mostly European, and bond laborers, of whom one quarter were African descent. Soon, through legislation, the planter class differentiated black people as lesser, as a group unworthy of freedom, one that must be under total control of the wealthy in order to keep them in line and to protect the Christian Anglo-Saxons from their deviant influence. This new narrative of white supremacy gave an illusion that poor whites were just like the elite, that they could eventually reach their position, creating a status for them that was one rung above blackness. It was a way of saying, things may be bad, but at least you're a part of this better group. At least you're one of us, and not one of them. This new, superior category meant to pacify white indentured servants would cost black folks the last of their rights, and they would bear the burden of this new narrative in horrific ways for the rest of the nation's history. The first of these laws, unsurprisingly, focused on white women as property, making it illegal for visibly black men to marry a woman of European blood. It became illegal, too, for black people to raise a hand to any white person, whether plantation owner or indentured servant. Soon, property and livestock owned by those who were now considered black was seized and redistributed to poor whites. Any areas that had allowed Africans to vote revoked that privilege, and black families were legally allowed to be broken up, children taken away from their parents, and sold. Within a few decades, race became the defining feature in America, and the divisions of class became foggier, with all working toward the benefit of the wealthy in a hierarchy that began the systematic snuffing out of the vital allegiances of the white and black working class. After two grueling centuries of brutal enslavement and shortly before the outbreak of the Civil War, a pro-slavery senator from South Carolina named James Henry Hammond delivered what would become a famous speech about the benefits of slavery to a divided Senate, chastising the North for their willingness to free slaves at the cost, he believed, of the poor whites of the nation. His mudsill theory rested upon its own metaphor, that is, the threshold that supports the foundations of a building. He believed that there would always 
be a lower class that did the work of the elites. But the decision had to be made. Would that be black people or would it be poor whites? A plantation owner with 300 slaves, Hammond spoke of them as, quote, happy, content, and unaspiring. He believed that the true evil existed in the North, where the Union was willing to exploit those that he called brothers in blood. The enslaved, he said, were well taken care of, but the labor system in the North meant that the poor did not have the same privileges that the plantation owners generously bestowed. It would eventually be discovered that Hammond was a serial rapist of his allegedly happy slaves, including an enslaved woman who would go on to have a child, likely Hammond's own daughter, who he also raped when she was 12 years old. Those going to war for the Confederate Army suffered a serious lack of food rations, specifically because the plantation owners would not give up their cash crop of cotton in order to grow more corn and wheat. And they were hoarding huge amounts of food for themselves while also stealing horses and farm animals from the women and children who were left behind. Those who were also suffering from severe food shortages. Men deserted the army to save themselves from this extreme hunger and the horrors of war to care for their families. And there are even those who joined up with the enslaved to revolt and build insular multiracial communities with union ties. Those that were forced into battle were known to call it, quote, a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. Of course, these aren't sweeping truths, because by the time the Civil War happened, anti-Black racism had touched the hearts of almost all white men in the nation. But we have to remember that every soldier of the Confederate Army was an individual, and every soldier was required to fight. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week and you can pause anytime so just head to factormeals.com slash american hysteria 50 and use code american hysteria 50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20 percent off your next box that's code american hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash american hysteria 50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, 
the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. These categories of white privilege and black inferiority were not well established in the more remote region we mentioned earlier called Appalachia, which stretches from the south up into the northeast and includes all of West Virginia and the mountainous parts of Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Maryland, Mississippi, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. After the Civil War, as railways spread into the South and industrialized Appalachia, a wave of writers looking for stories to sell journeyed into the impoverished area that had previously gone unnoticed. These educated Northeasterners were known as local color writers, and along with opportunist Christian missionaries, they began painting a dramatic picture for the middle class of the abject poverty and the characters that inhabited this strange and mythical area. They too constructed this idea of a pure Anglo-Saxon stock, a lost white race, the innocence that kept them from the evils of industrialization that unnerved the affluent thinking class. But at the same time, a second narrative was developing too, as fiction writer John Fox Jr.'s novel described mountain people as savage, bloodthirsty barbarians, and they became extremely popular. They were described as having ghastly yellowish-white skin like yellow parchment, people who were listless and slothful and could not care for their own children because they were so addicted to alcohol. Also popular was the myth of this total familial isolation, making it easy for the public to create assumptions that were backed by these stories, assumptions of the inbreeding that had to take place in order for them to continue their communities. Side note, a pretty comprehensive study done in the 1980s showed that Appalachians practiced inbreeding at no greater rate than the rest of the United States. By 1900, the word hillbilly would officially be coined in the New York Journal and was defined as, quote, A free and untrammeled white citizen of Alabama who lives in the hills, has no means to speak of, dresses as he can, talks as he pleases, drinks whiskey when he gets it, and fires off his revolver as the fancy takes him. At the same time that middle and upper class writers were exploiting the lives of so-called hillbillies for fame and money, big business was descending on what interested them most, the huge ribbons of coal lying under their dirty bare feet. The companies bargained with Appalachians for their valuable land in deals like 12 rifles and 13 hogs for the rights that would make the owners of these companies into fast millionaires and would eventually produce billions of dollars worth of coal. These former landowners needing income quickly became coal miners, and the company set up labor camps and paid workers in an invented currency called scrip that could only be used in the coal towns owned by the companies, with prices hiked up exorbitantly. 
As you might expect, the working conditions in these mines were horrific. Devastating accidents and injuries were common, and the workers were underpaid and had almost no recourse for this treatment. The benefits of this exploitation went straight to the shareholders far away who never even had a dusting of coal touch their hands and the middle class who were able to purchase this cheap new energy. All the big companies bought up the coal mineral for practically nothing from the poor people. Now they ain't got nothing to live on or nothing else. That's where it hurts at. Those color writers had completely and conveniently ignored the free black men and women as well as the indigenous people that populated the mountain region, often living and working alongside the white Appalachians. In the Battle of Blair Mountain, the workers found common ground in their poverty and exploitation and a common enemy in the abusive coal companies. The only thing we can do is take over where we are and run that. And if we can once begin to do that and build a base from where we are all poor, then maybe we can have something to say about how the society is run. Today I am a man that can stand up for human beings and human dignity and human rights. In 1921, 10 to 20,000 miners marched into Logan County, West Virginia in military formation, demanding the right to unionize. The 3,000 lawmen and coal company heads that were opposing them were supported by the National Guard on presidential order, and approximately one million rounds were fired upon the protesters, in addition to bombs dropped from planes above. Up to 100 miners were killed, and many more were arrested, and it would ultimately be deemed the largest labor uprising in United States history. A white miner who fought in the battle was quoted as saying, I call it a darn solid mass of different colors and tribes, blended together, woven together, bound, interlocked, tongued and grooved together in one body. Though the term redneck originally applied to sunburnt European migrants, all the miners, white and black, wore red bandanas around their necks as a sign of union solidarity and were labeled rednecks as a result. As the coal industry continued to grow and began to automate much of the work that the unions had fought for, Appalachians started leaving the region to find stable work in the factories in city centers. In a migration along a symbolic route known as the Hillbilly Highway, thousands entered the city of Chicago, and they were not met with a warm welcome. In fact, many businesses refused to serve those they called hillbillies and would hang signs outside that said, quote, no Southerners need apply. The sudden influx of these impoverished whites shook the affluent Southerners to their cores, who had previously clung to that idea that only people of color could be that poor, that degenerate as they viewed them, and a greater need to scientifically classify and solidify categories of race emerged to reinforce, of course, white supremacy. In the following years, a new term rose to scientific and psychological prominence, feeble-mindedness, and it applied often to those deemed as white trash people. 
Of course, black people and other people of color needed no qualifier to be deemed trash and were considered feeble-minded as a whole, while whites would be categorized as such based on an early version of the IQ test. These IQ tests, however, were bound to show the results that reinforced the racist and classist views of the scientists and the elites that supported them, as poor whites and minorities in the South did not receive the same access to education, an issue that predated the Civil War and still exists today. These IQ tests were touted by University of Virginia Dean Harvey Ernest Jordan, who called his home state the perfect laboratory to compare those named the first families of Virginia with what he considered the worst stock, the feeble-minded poor. These studies would lead directly to the Racial Integrity Act of 1924, supported by the Anglo-Saxon Club, who had founded two posts in Charlottesville, one for the town and one for the students at the University of Virginia. Marriages between white and black people had long been illegal, but the categories of those deemed mixed race were blurry, as it was sometimes difficult to determine their race based on looks alone. Every resident of Virginia was required to register with the State Bureau of Vital Statistics to be classified by race. All doctors were legally forced to report the racial history of the infants they birthed. This was done in order to keep racial degeneracy from infiltrating the middle and upper class, especially because so many mixed race people were able to pass as white. Terms previously used in animal breeding became commonplace, and when Harvard got in on eugenics as well, like most universities, Professor William McDougall proposed that those of his superior stock, called the aristogenic, who inherited eliteness at birth through proper breeding, should be separated into a community called eugenia, centered around, what else, but a university. Leading eugenicist Charles Davenport popularized the idea that incest was widespread in Appalachia and was considered one of the cardinal sins against upper-class white stock. These ideas would lead to mass sterilizations of those labeled feeble-minded who were almost always considered sexual deviants, a great deal of them poor whites along with racial minorities. There was even a process called mountain sweeps that involved the police driving into Appalachia to forcibly remove, institutionalize, and sterilize pretty much anyone they wanted to. These procedures, though, were performed at a higher rate on those considered feeble-minded in the southern states, so much so that they garnered a crude nickname, Mississippi Appendectomies. These laws helped comfort the elite to seal their privilege in both whiteness and class, their superiority in manners and education. These people got to believe that they deserved everything they had, that it was the natural order. On the other side of the coin, the impoverished deserved their position, too. We have declared unconditional war on poverty. Our objective is total victory. Thank <laughs> you.
In a time of desegregation, poor whites became the new in-vogue political focus with President Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Poverty, and his tour of Appalachia became a media obsession, much like it did when the color writers first infiltrated that region. Perhaps well-intentioned, this political posturing did indeed fix some short-term issues that Appalachia faced, but it also reinforced the narrative of a false singular identity of this region as white and impoverished, ignoring the significant population of people of color. Johnson had, perhaps unknowingly, created an image of the deserving poor, the white poor, the pitiful poor, even as poverty rates were rising faster for black people in the city. But in those urban areas, disenfranchised citizens of color as well as white people found common ground as they once did at the Battle of Blair Mountain. Well, that's saying that no matter what color you are, you're just only two classes. And that's saying there's a class over here and there's a class over there. This is the oppressed, this is the oppressor, this is the exploited, this is the exploiter. And these people in this class have divided themselves. They say, I'm black and I hate white people. I'm here, but I hate black people. They want to keep you to believing that I'm your enemy. They want to keep you thinking that he's your enemy. One of the leading members of the Chicago branch of the deeply misunderstood Black Panther Party, young and prolific Black activist Fred Hampton, is someone we talked about extensively in our terrorism series. He was murdered by the police for his organizing at just 21 years old, shot point-blank in the bed he shared with his pregnant fiancée. Fred left behind an unparalleled legacy of Black activism through his work with the Black Panthers. But a lesser-known contribution of Fred's was the formation of a multi-race group of activists he called the Rainbow Coalition, an alliance of Black people, Latinos, and working-class whites. Along with the Young Lords, a Latino rights organization, the Panthers would meet activists who lived in the area of Chicago known as Hillbilly Harlem, full of those that had followed the Hillbilly Highway into the city, some of whom had formed the Young Patriots organization and were known for their display of the Confederate flag. Needless to say, the Black Panthers were disturbed by this, but as each group attended one another's meetings, Fred saw that they were fighting for essentially the same things, albeit in different ways. Poverty, unemployment, police violence, substandard housing, inadequate schools, and a lack of social services. They told the Black Panthers that the Confederate flag was a symbol of Southern rebellion, an idea that came out of the revisionist history of the Civil War, known as the Lost Cause, that we'll talk about in our mini-episode next week. Fred would reluctantly allow the flying of this symbol just so long as the young patriots vocally denounced racism as a whole. By the end of these discussions, however, the Young Patriots organization not only rejected their own embedded ideas of white supremacy, they also agreed to never fly the Confederate flag again. As the Rainbow Coalition, they protected one another from abusive police, created health care clinics, and set up food resources for poor inner-city children of all races. These alliances were not mainstream, but this example showed that there could still be allegiances between black people and poor whites. And as we know, many of these organizations were brutally broken up by the police who came to protect that precarious privilege of the middle and upper class. 
That protection could only go so far. But the fear of these alliances, the fear of this poor white stock, the anger against those that had proved to them that whiteness alone could not shield them from a life of poverty, would continue to inform horror movies, pop culture, and the images of that rabid Trump country we see in the present day. More after this. And now, back to the show. Coal has remained a potent symbol of the white working class since its beginnings in Appalachia, as well as a harbinger of dangerous climate change to much of the left. Let's look at two statements that created decisive moments that won this white working class vote for Donald Trump. The first was Hillary Clinton's. We're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. Compare that to this statement by Donald Trump. We are going to put our coal miners back to work. Hillary Clinton's coal comments were taken out of context, to be sure, used as sound bites across Fox News over and over. She meant that there was no real way to save the coal industry as cheaper and more sustainable energy was moving full steam ahead, no pun intended. And so the alternative that she presented was one of retraining coal workers into working in green energy. Trump was never going to be able to save the industry. And predictably, his policies have not slowed the closing of coal plants. In fact, they're closing at higher rates than ever before. Of course, he knew that was going to happen. But he knew, too, that the most important thing to those living in poverty is to be able to take care of themselves and their families. Donald Trump made his fame rallying against the elite, posing as a friend of the working man, more redneck than the arrogantly educated that made up the establishment. Of course, as the billionaire he claims to be, or the millionaire he more likely is, he couldn't be any more elite. But believing that the enemies are instead the democratic elite, the educated, snooty, uppity, liberal establishment is appealing to so many who feel that they're looked down upon. This is, of course, regardless of the fact that the powerful on both sides of the political spectrum, including most obviously Donald Trump, have everything to gain from worker disenfranchisement, have everything to gain from the perpetuation of that mudsill theory, their own riches still built on the backs of the working class, including, most ironically, the many undocumented immigrants who performed manual labor at Trump's resorts. And as we know, Trump manipulated most the relationship between working class white people and the evil immigrants coming to steal their jobs. We know that white male voters overwhelmingly voted for Trump and even the majority of white women, while black and Latino voters primarily went with Clinton. The media painted the average Trump voter as a stupid racist redneck, and it's true that rural voters came out in greater numbers than they had before to vote for Trump. But a lesser discussed fact is that the majority of those with incomes over $50,000 a year voted for Trump as well. Along with the rural populations, suburbia voted for Trump by a margin of 5%. But contrary to what we might assume, 
those working-class folks with union ties ended up going with Hillary Clinton. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter where you live. Anyone in this country can have an underlying foundation, no matter how subconsciously, of racism. Either those made to believe that they're just one rung above black folks, or those that have gained generations of wealth through their oppression, or even those that overlook all of his problematic elements in order to benefit from his businessman approach to the economy. But hold on one second. Let's listen to another decisive moment in Clinton's campaign that would seal her failure in the Rust Belt states. You can put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. (laughs) Right? These words would play well into Trump's narrative as a man of the forgotten and abused white working class and would help the future media blame rednecks at large for his victory. Trump has done far more than most others to promote the vocal rise of alt-right white nationalism, but he is not alone in his racism. He's just more public about it. Clinton's legacy on race is anything but squeaky clean, as we explored in our episode called Dangerous Teens. Aided by First Lady Hillary Clinton's construction of the idea of the super predator, which referred covertly or to me overtly to young black men, aided in Bill Clinton's creation of the 1994 crime bill and the three strikes provision that disproportionately affected people of color and led to the highest incarceration rate that the United States had ever seen. So yeah, this thing called racism isn't limited to any population. It isn't limited to anyone. In fact, it lives inside all of us. It's a legacy. Many sociologists, in fact, have noted that rednecks serve as a kind of psychic dumping ground for liberals and centrist white voters, a group to blame as the others, a group to blame for these problems that still exist in spades. The Ivy Leagues of the Northeast would like to imagine themselves as a distinctive brand of liberalism, but they were nonetheless often constructed by slaves or at least funded by profits from slavery, and they even reaped the money from faraway plantations that they owned on occasion. There's something about the idea that being educated absolves you of racism. That learning how to talk the talk means somehow that you also walk the walk. Take the University of Virginia, for example, a college I attended from 2011 to 2013, erected by its beloved darling president of the early 1800s, Thomas Jefferson, who famously wrote perhaps the most American of elite falsities. All men are created equal. Born rich and then well-educated, Jefferson is considered one of the most brilliant Americans to ever exist, writing about abolition, yes, but only if the enslaved could be deported away from the nation, lest they band together against their former slave owners. It's true that he did help end the Atlantic slave trade, but this was something that never affected his own privilege. And by the end of his life, Jefferson had owned 600 slaves, around 200 of them the day he died, and he didn't even free them in his will. 
He defended fervently white superiority through his support of eugenics that would take root in his very own educational institute. Jefferson knew the drill, and he wrote about the fact that in order to justify slavery, a white slaveholder needed to believe that the worst white man was better than the best black man. And he did believe that until the day he died. Just a mile or so away from his elite university, the neo-Nazi and alt-right mob that made up the Unite the Right rally would use those same ideas in their defense of white supremacy. As I've talked about on this show, just five years before, I was arrested in that very same park for my participation in the Occupy Charlottesville protests. The thing about the Occupy Wall Street movement is that it revived a tradition of multiracial solidarity against the elite, a unity of the 99%, everyone except the billionaires, i.e. the richest 1%. But slowly, the deafening cracks began to show themselves, and people of color, queer people, and women of all races felt the weight of a second-class citizenship, despite this sweeping, too easy declaration of togetherness. The divisions that the rich literally manufactured over the course of American history were still working in their favor. As President Lyndon B. Johnson, the architect of the War on Poverty, once said, quote, If you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. My grandpa listened to Johnny Cash, to June Carter and her family, to the queen of the earth, Dolly Parton, to Kenny Rogers, rest in peace, to Alan Jackson and Willie Nelson. We think of country music as a white genre, sometimes painfully white and often ridiculous in the modern pop world, with Blake Shelton's eye roll lines making fun of a popular hip hop dance. Well, the boys around here, they're keeping it country. Ain't a damn one know how to do the Dougie. You don't do the Dougie? No, not in Kentucky. Lies about Appalachia, which includes Kentucky, have constructed it as a white place. But as we learned with the Battle of Blair Mountain, that's never been the case. And just like blues, just like jazz, just like rock and roll, black folks are responsible for so much of what we know as a country folk old-time sound. The banjo, made famously white by minstrelsy and then deliverance, was a West African instrument brought across the Atlantic slave trade, which then joined forces with the fiddle, an instrument of European origin. Black folks and white folks in Appalachia joined forces to create the country sound that we know today. That is, until the capitalism of the recording industry divided the genres into race music that focused on blues, gospel, and jug bands, and hillbilly music made up of country and folk. Those black artists who played country music had to quickly adapt to these new constructs if they wanted to cut records and make money. White musicians would go on to keep the banjo as their own and find more success, of course, than their black counterparts. But both genres implied a lower status, and hillbilly music was considered just a rung above race music in the hierarchy of entertainment. Wishing to better understand my grandpa, 
this man who was, for me, the truest pillar of kindness and gentleness that I knew, a man so unlike the stereotypes of the racist, dangerous, stupid backwoods redneck, I drove my own pickup truck from Seattle out to North Dakota and found myself sitting across from his relative at the only restaurant in town. Not knowing I was queer, she said cruel things about gay people, another stereotype bestowed almost singularly on Southern rednecks, despite notoriously liberal Californians voting to eliminate same-sex couples' right to marry in 2008, and despite the fact that today West Virginia has the highest population of transgender teenagers. And the fact that in my personal experience, the most times I'd ever been called a homophobic slur was in the heart of liberal Seattle. This relative also took me up to her double wide, fed me generously, sang my praises with love in her voice. My 10-year-old cousin walked her horse with me down a long dirt road under the same blue sky that my grandpa had ridden his own horse to school, the same route I had imagined a million times, and I felt, in many ways, like I was home. It was all deeply complicated, and even now, it's not something I can easily unravel. Months later, when that same relative learned I was gay, she softened so easily, and she never had a bad word to say after that. I know that love doesn't always work. I'm not naive. I've hitchhiked my way through the South and heard the most vitriolic racism I could have ever imagined, and no sweet nothings would have softened those angry men. There are many people all over the country who will likely never change. Extremists and white supremacists like the ones we saw in Charlottesville. But also those all over the spectrum who refuse to ever think about the problems that exist inside them too. Those aren't the people we're talking about. And I don't know how to fix that type of thinking. But I don't think it's naive to imagine that most of us are not so fragmented as to never be able to come together again. I know that the privilege of my middle-class life means that I can never fully understand my grandpa's experience, even with my gun-shooting, trout-fishing, horseshoe-throwing childhood just as I cannot fully understand this podcast episode I've made. The pain of poverty, both black and white. The pain that doesn't belong to me. But just because I can't ever fully understand doesn't mean that I shouldn't try. Not just with research and writing, but by unlearning the racism and classism that America has soaked each and every one of us in. Working class redneck and elite PhD student conservative and liberal alike. By pointing the finger inward first, we begin moving toward the teamwork it takes to battle the policies of the powerful that harm the large majority of Americans to this day. It takes hard work and it takes humility to understand each other. On that same trip to North Dakota, I was driven in the back of yet another pickup truck this one bright yellow, across the technicolor glowing green of the grass to the wooded area where my grandpa's small house once stood. All that was left was an outline, a few bricks that implied everything about what it was like to grow up there, the beauty and the pain. When I finally returned to Seattle, 
When the city that never could quite feel like home rose up around me, I brought my grandpa back a single brick from the remains of his beloved house, from his old beloved life, and he put it up on his mantle where he could look at it every day. My grandpa's favorite story, his proudest achievement that eclipsed everything else he had ever accomplished, was about the time he won a singing contest as a little kid at a barn dance with his sincere rendition of the old-time tune Red River Valley. I wanted to understand my grandpa the best way that I could, and so I sat with him across from his bright blue eyes and sang him the best that I could, his favorite country song. Come and sit by my side if you love me. Do not hasten to bid me adieu. But remember that Red River Valley and the cowboy who loved you so true. For our beloved grandpa, Ray Hoganson, this was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we're covering the complicated revisionist narrative of the Civil War known as the Lost Cause. After that, we're taking a little break for a couple weeks, and we'll come back to talk about the homeless. The nonprofit we'd like to highlight this week is the Highlander Research and Education Center. This organization serves as a catalyst for grassroots organizing and movement building in Appalachia and the U.S. South. You can find the link to donate in our show notes. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Camo Studios. Co-researched, written, and edited by Riley Smith and Miranda Zickler. And voice acting by Will Rogers. And thanks to Miranda for her banjo playing on this episode. Thanks as always for listening. And I hope during this time of quarantine, this time of outrageous uncertainty, you too can find solidarity with those in your community. Please take care of yourselves and each other and have a great week. This is a rough time for creators, just as it is for everyone all over the world. But if you love our show and can support us at all, we would love for you to become a patron. You can find the link in our show notes. You'll get early episodes and extra content every month, and you'll help American Hysteria keep going through season three and beyond. We do need extra help. Oh,